miss you. I miss my friend. Oh, this is this is that moment, isn't it? This is This is your intervention. Whatever you think is helping you, I have a responsibility as your friend to tell you that it's not. Just tell me what to do. You know that nice red bicycle that you have? Yes. You're gonna dust off old red and you're gonna get on a ferry. I'm sending you to my dad's place. There's no TV, there's no internet, there's nothing. It's just you. Uh, it's just you and we have a couple of forks, yeah. I might need to stab myself in the face. <laughs> the wrong house and I, I hey you're hannah oh my god i'm so sorry i'm iris's friend jack Actually, I, I want to apologize. I hate to start by asking you questions about Mark Duplass, but I want to, I want to go back to the beginning of, of this film, kind of the origin, because I understand he kind of came to you with the initial setup anyway. So he did. How, did, how did that work? What did he bring to you and what got you interested in this film, in this well, idea? We'd, we'd been looking for a way to collaborate again because we'd had such a good time on Hump Day and I think we're a good match um, in the creative process. And so, you know, he has this vault of movies that he and his brother Jay may turn into a movie, you know, movie someday in the future but this one felt a little too close to home because at the center there was a guy who had recently lost his brother and that just felt like probably something that he wouldn't want to be tackling anytime soon but he still thought it was a great kernel for a story so he called and said here's what I got it's a guy and a girl they're best friends he's in a bad place because he's lost his brother recently she sends him up to her family's getaway to kind of get some alone time and there he meets her hot young mother <laughs> <laughs> So I changed the mom to an older sister and not so much because I thought that the mother wouldn't provide some interesting, you know, interesting opportunities if it's I'm sure that would make a great movie as well. But I really liked the idea that there were these two parallel sets of sibling relationships mm -hmm. because the fourth character in the movie is the dead brother who you never meet physically, but um, he weighs so heavily on Jack's soul and also weighs heavily on the relationship between he and his best friend because his best friend Iris, played by Emily Blunt, once was in a relationship with Tom, the dead brother. So there's that kind of interesting, there's like a tr love triangle there already. And and then the, these two parallel relationships, uh, complicated sister relationship, very complicated brother relationship, and it informs how he interacts with the two women. So, yeah, I just thought that would be really interesting territory. So You mentioned that you and Mark are a good match, and I'm curious, what makes you a good match, and how did you connect with him originally? I'm a fan of his work as a director and as an actor in your films, and he just seems like one of those guys who could be either the guy at the party who's the coolest guy in the room, funny, smart, engaging, or he can be the guy like he is at the start of this film, kind of off in the corner, lost and completely hapless and not wanting to mingle with anybody. So there's some dynamics there that you can play with with Mark a little bit. Oh, my God. He's got tremendous range as an actor, for sure. And he's he's very vanity-free, which is important to me um, as a director. I love unvain actors. He's just really interested in... Uh, the truth, you know, I mean, that's I think the thing that bonds us is that we're both our guiding light is authenticity and credibility and making sure that the characters that are being portrayed on film are on screen are not just sort of cardboard cutout replicas of humans, but are actual real feeling mm -hmm. human beings. And we sort of hit the ground running. You know, when we first met, we had we were sort of primed to meet each other. Um, we had a mutual friend in actually several mutual friends, but the main one was Joe Swanberg. I had just met I'd met Joe in the 2006 Maryland Film Festival. He was there with the second feature film, LOL. And I was there with We Go Way Back, my first feature. And he was just about to start working with with uh, with Mark on 
Hannah takes the stairs and told me, oh, you got to see the puffy chair. And and so Mark ended up coming, I think it was 2007, he came to Seattle, which is where I live, to shoot a movie. He was He was starring in a film called True Adolescence by Craig Johnson. And I volunteered to be a set photographer for a few days on that film, basically so I could meet and hopefully bond with Mark Duplass. And I remember we both knew of each other and we saw each other for the very first time, like a down this path. I remember I was walking. I was in the beach, walking towards the beach, and he was coming towards me. And we, as soon as we saw who we were, yeah. we both just sort of flung open our arms, <laughs> and we just had this huge bear hug. And that was kind of like, I don't know, it was like from the get-go. I just remember really bonding with him right away. We just had a real kinship in terms of how we like to make movies. We didn't want mm-hmm. to wait around for permission to do it. You know, We wanted to just be able to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and make our own movies. And we also really felt strongly that the more freedom you know you're able to give actors on set in terms of how the dialogue comes out of their mouths you know the more naturalistic you're going a performance you're going to get and and we really love the idea of that true kind of collaboration and he i think he's very different as a director actually than i am as a director i although i haven't had an opportunity to see mm-hmm. him on set that much but at any rate i i just as him as an actor and me as a director i feel like we just it's a good it's a good match good fit you're listening to Film Spotting. We're talking with writer-director Lynn Shelton about her new film, Your Sister's Sister, and specifically her collaboration with the star of that film, Mark Duplass. And it's interesting because this is your second time in a row working with him, thinking of Hump Day. And I've been trying all morning here to come up with a clever spin on this question because I'm sure you've heard it a million times. It's probably the most common one you get, but at least your last three films, going back to My Effortless Brilliance. And I think that probably safe to say those are the three where you've been working kind of in the same similar approach, same style in how you come at the film. You've really focused on male characters, not to undermine what happens with female characters. Certainly in this film, your sister's sister, Emily Blunt's character and Rosemary DeWitt are key figures. And certainly the wife, Alicia Delmore in Hump Day, I think that movie is just as much a husband and wife story, if not more, than it is the friendship story. That all said, Mark's character, the male characters are kind of what drive the film forward. I'm curious if there's something in you as a woman that draws you to telling male stories. You know, I'm going to answer the way that Mike Lee answers when people say, you keep making these wonderful movies about female characters with really real feeling female characters. And he says, I don't make movies about women. I make movies about people. And it really is true for me. Those three films all have one thing in common, which is that I had to come at them as a sociologist, sort of from the outside in, because I didn't have direct personal experience being in a straight male friendship um, or being in a, a complicated sibling relationship either. Because I don't know if I would if I would say that the movie, I, I think it's as much about Jack as it is about the sisters, but I, I really feel like that's a huge, for me, the sister relationship is a very, very key one. Um, but my relationships with my siblings are incredibly uncomplicated and boring and <laughs> just sort of pure love. And so they're unfettered by a lot of a lot of baggage or, or layers of jealousies or competition, at least on my end. Well, you'd have to ask my siblings how they feel about me. But um, for on my part, I, d- I didn't feel like there was – I could draw on personal experience as much. But I've observed around me, I do have to say I'm a pretty good people watcher and have always been compelled and fascinated by the human condition and by the dynamics of interpersonal relationships. Mm-hmm. And I have noticed these incredibly layered, convoluted, complicated, deep, you know, textured relationships between siblings where there's this incredible bond and this desire and deep need to connect, but it's complicated by all kinds of, you know, just resentments and jealousies and sort of 
held, you know, resentments that are held onto long after betrayals, mm-hmm. have, you know, from the past have happened. And, um, and, and, you know, it's just, I keep coming back again and again to relationships. I'm really moved by when people try to connect with each other and they can't because of whatever obstructions and that straight male friendship is a nice territory for that i think you know it's it's a little bit more complicated for straight guys to tell each other you know the basic i love you man kind of thing the i love you has to be qualified by the man right. anyway um and uh <laughs> and, and the bro hug the bro hug yeah exactly and it's always a little awkward and you know um and and some and for certain siblings i think it's the same kind of thing so i just i'm always drawn to that kind of territory you know yeah, you seem particularly drawn to these interpersonal dynamics and characters trying to connect in a confined space. <laughs> you like to throw people together either for the first time or often they're reuniting and there's some baggage there and they're coming together. Is that just obvious? It makes for good drama when tensions kind of build up and there's kind of this claustrophobia. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. That that tension, they're chamber pieces, I guess, you know. Mm-hmm. You could. People have pointed out to me that they'd make good plays, and they do tend to take place. I've made three movies in a row now with three characters in basically one location, and basically all over the course of a long weekend. For the most part, you know, there's still there's a little bit of extra time at the end of your sister, sister, but the bulk of the drama happens over the course of about three days, and that that kind of confined space creates this microcosmic opportunity for the audience to really get to know these characters. And to see all of them, their flaws mm-hmm. and their weaknesses and hopefully be rooting for them in spite of that. Maybe because of that, you know, because they recognize that they're just as human as the, you know, we are ourselves. Well, that confined space also brings out this communal aspect of filmmaking. You guys kind of go to camp when you make these films. You go into this house or wherever the setting is and, and basically have to live together. How much of that is just by necessity? in order to make these films, limited budget, limited production schedule, and how much of it is, as you kind of said, wanting to play sociologist a little bit. I mean, you kind of get to do that as you're in the room observing how they are as people. It's it's really, really wonderful. To me, it's the ideal way to make a film is to kidnap a group of collaborators and go off to some remote place because you never you never stop working. I mean, you do stop working, but, but your off time, your off hours are feeding directly into what's going to happen the next day on set. It's just, it's really beautiful. And, uh, you know, remarkably, somebody said, well, don't people want to get away, you know? And generally not. I mean, they can. There's places that they can go secrete themselves You don't have them chained to the radiator, (laughs) is what you're saying? Yeah, exactly. They're all all held hostage, and yet they seem to be willing, (laughs) willing victims. Yeah, they're really, there's something that happens on set that's so intimate and so wonderful that we can't wait to just you know, have a home cooked meal together and all, you know, and everybody, I'm talking about the crew and the cast. I mean, there were a total of 16 people, including the actors. So really, it was a very tight little community. And it really is, you're right, camp is a very good, it's like film camp. Yeah. And we're working our asses off, but it's really very fun too. You're listening to Film Spotting, talking with writer director Lynn Shelton. Her new movie is Your Sister's Sister. Another motif I've noticed that occurs throughout your work so far is the conversation. This element of this really fiery moment where these people who are either connecting or reconnecting come together and often make a decision that it definitely drives the whole rest of the film forward. And often it's something they come to regret a little bit. And for me, those conversations are just as good as watching a car chase. I mean, that's really why I respond to your films, because I love just watching the dynamics of that. And so the conversation here, you have Rosemary DeWitt, who is the sister to Jack's best friend, 
played by Emily Blunt. This is uh, their conversation that first night at this cabin they're staying at. And it starts out with a really interesting dynamic where they're a little bit at odds. They're not really connecting. Why are they in this place? Why are they both here? And then you over the course of this montage and this great dialogue they have, get them to a really interesting place. Not only do they come around and begin to befriend each other, but they also end up in a position, I won't say, but it, it's completely unthinkable at the start of the conversation. So what I'm curious about is just that conversation piece, particularly with this film, how do you approach it? How do you shoot that kind of scene? Well, it's really easy. The shooting of it is, is uh, you know, technically I have two cameras <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I have one over the you know the shoulder of each actor, and we use two cameras for the most part. I'd say ninety five percent of the film is shot with two cameras, especially all those conversational pieces. And the thing that's beautiful about that is that you can go off script because my movies are. I mean, I would say this one is probably eighty percent improvised. The dialogue is eighty percent improvised, and then twenty percent of what I wrote on the page remains pretty much intact. So I wrote, um, in this case, a seventy-page scriptment. I call it. Uh-huh. Um, there was there were some scenes that were sketchier than others, but for the most part, they were all written. A lot of dialogue was written out, basically for the purpose of giving the actresses, the the female actors who had not were not veteran improvisers as Mark was, just a sense of emotional safety that they wasn't just throwing them out there without a safety net, and and uh, they had. If they liked a line, they could certainly ref- should feel free to use it. But when I approach improvisation, I don't. I really want everybody to know exactly what the point of every scene is, how the scenes are all going to add up. It's not like we're sort of showing up on set and saying, you know, not only are you going to entertain us now by being clever, and you know, but also we're going to figure out what the movie is on set. You know, we we really know it's very very structured and very sort of pointed. So. Yeah, we're all on the same page. We don't rehearse because oftentimes with improv, the very first take is the best. So you basically want to be shooting the rehearsal. But we'll talk at nauseum to make sure everybody's on the same page and we know what the emotional trajectory, where they have to go. Mm-hmm. And then I'll just turn the cameras on and say, are you ready? Go, you know. And, and then what's lovely, too, is that in the edit room, they know that I'm going to be able to find the best stuff. And so if parts of it, if they try something and they fall on their face, it doesn't matter. They can pick themselves up and keep going. There can be moments where it meanders or it's sort of it's like maybe I remember Emily saying, I remember distinctly there were moments when it felt like it must be watching like paint dry, you know, just <laughs> incredibly boring. But they have the trust, hopefully, in me that that I'm not going to let any I'm not going to let them. They're not going to look bad on film. So at the end of the take, I will I'll let them go through the whole scene usually. And then I'll give them some notes and we'll and we'll go at it again. And we don't have an endless amount of time. We only shot this thing in 12 days. Right. So usually there's only enough time for. I'm hoping to get what I need in about three takes, and then we'll do fourth, a fourth as a safety. Occasionally, we'll have to go more, but usually it's pretty concise. You know, it's a pretty efficient process, and I don't know. Somehow, it all works. And, you know, I started as an editor, so I'm clocking in the back of my brain, okay, do I have enough ingredients in there among the four takes? Right. You know, that I don't need a perfect take because I'm going to be mixing and matching. And you just sort of feel your way. And it's, yeah. it's stressful you know, I worked on Mad Men just the summer before I shot this film, and it was so lovely to have an entire script, like all the dialogue, <laughs> and it was so beautifully written. And oh my God, this you were is rethinking just everything now, exactly. And it's like, what? What am I doing? Trying to write on set, but when it works, it's so exhilarating. And there are these moments that just you, I could never have written. You know, I just dialogue that comes out and in in a way that just is so natural mm-hmm. or moments where the actors will surprise each other you know mark loves to 
all the actors did it, but there's just this element of actual action and reaction where right. you're reacting because you, you have to be engaged. You have to be there. You're not saving it up for your close-up. You're not – you don't know what's coming out next. So you ha- there's just an electricity that happens with improv that I think will always keep me coming back. We're talking with Lynn Shelton, the writer-director of the new film, Your Sister's Sister. And tell me if I'm crazy, but there's actually one of those moments in that conversation where I wonder if you were employing one of those old editor's tricks where there's a great line at one point in the montage where Rosemary DeWitt says something like, you were, you were going for something or you were on a roll and I cut you oh. off. And that seemed to me one of those moments where it was probably, even though it worked perfectly for the characters, that was probably really... Rosemary, the actress, saying that to Mark, the actor, and it worked in the in the final take. Am I am I on to anything there at all? And how often do you kind of go for those those moments that just spring up? In all honesty, that I distinctly remember that moment, and it was definitely she was definitely in character really? at that moment. Yeah, for sure. But I'm glad it felt so natural. It feels it was spontaneous, like, like yeah. the whole film does, of course, yeah. if it's working right, and it does. Yeah, so. exactly. It's. I mean, I'm always open to happy accidents like that. But what I'm looking for is the kind of collaboration with actors that allow them to feel as if their character is is like a glove, like they're just able to slip into it like a hand into a mm-hmm. glove. And there's so much overlap with themselves, not that they're playing themselves, but they're able to bring their own cadences, you know, as human beings um, and their own personalities to to the fore in a way that. It's just second nature when they open their mouths and what comes out is just second nature. And, and having an, an enormous amount of backstory, which I've developed with them over the course of several months, helps enormously as well. And they're, they're again, they're heavily asked for a lot of involvement mm-hmm. in that process. And I think it really helps. You talked earlier uh, about structure. You've talked about it quite a bit. And that was one of the things that really drew me to Hump Day. And I don't even want to bring up the word mumblecore. I was trying to get through this whole interview without doing it. But it's one of those things where... Something about Hump Day really grabbed me because it seemed like it was bringing the best aspects of Mumblecore in terms of that kind of improvisational approach and these characters where the actors have clearly invested themselves and there's just this great naturalness and there's an urgency with the camera and Hump Day there's a lot of close-ups and again really making use of that confined space. But at the same time, there is that structure. There is a sense that there's always a roadmap, that there is something clearly defined where these characters are going. So how how important is that to you to have that structure in place from the beginning? Oh, it's incredibly important to me. I really, with Hump Day in particular, I, I remember my goal was I wanted to make a movie that felt like that really great movie-going experience where you're on the edge, edge of your seat. You know, at the end of every scene, you're wondering, oh, what's going to happen next? What's going to happen next? And and it just driving you through or sort of pulling you through, you know, the narrative. Mm-hmm. And and I think that that's – I'm a real control freak. So the collaborative process, both, both the crew and the cast, is extremely terrifying and ever exhilarating for me. I didn't come into my own as an artist. I've been an artist my whole life, but I didn't come into my own until I discovered that collaborative process. But I am still enough of a control freak <laughs> that I can't leave the structure up to – you know, I, I have to know what's going to be coming down the pike, right. you know, and what the point of every scene is and that it's all going to add up in the in the end. So the improv aspect of it, I like to employ in how the actual words are going to be formed. Again, I'm just all in the quest of naturalism, you know, mm-hmm. and if, scene, if, if a line is working, great. But 
that's fine too. You know, I don't have anything against the written line. It's just, it's just, I'm really looking for that sense of authenticity. But structure's, yeah, incredibly important to me. Where do you think you're at right now in terms of your process as a director? Do you feel like it's really continuing to evolve and taking big steps? Are you refining a process that you feel really comfortable with and kind of want to keep mining the nuance of it? Where's that at right now? Well, what's interesting is that I actually just wrapped a film about two and a half weeks ago called Touchy Feely. And the way I made this movie is a divergence from my last three films, which are all three characters in one location (laughs) over the course of a long day weekend. I really wanted to break out of that. I felt like, okay, I really want to try something. I'm going to see if I can employ some of these same, you know, the same quest for naturalism, but maybe have a little more control Mm -hmm. over the script and a little bit more of an elaborate intertwining of multiple storylines and different, even more characters, scenarios, and so on. So it was inspired partially, I think, working on Mad Men, actually, and having having such a positive experience working with a script word perfectly. And then also working with Rose and Emily, who are more used to working with text as the spine of their, of their performances. And so I wrote a, a script with, you know, many characters and... It's got Ellen Page and Rosemary again in it and Josh Pice, Ron Livingston, Allison Janney, Scoot McNary. So it's lots of people, lots of storylines, and it's a real combination of drama and comedy. It's shot a little differently than my last few films. I mean, it's just it's, – it's, I think it'll still feel like a Lynn Shelton film, but it right. really is a divergent structurally. And I just needed to – I just needed to break out. Yeah. But it's funny because I have I had lots of locations and lots of uh, lots of people. It was a longer shoot. It was twenty whole days, um, <laughs> and I immediately started yearning for that that chamber piece, bare Did bones, you? microcosmic, yeah, scenario again. It, the thing about it is that the more complicated that your films get in terms, you know, visually and location wise mm-hmm. and so on, the more time you spend during production on technical stuff and the less time you're able to just be in it in the room with the actors finding the scene and really finding the truth of the scene and that's that's what gets me going as a filmmaker as a film goer i actually am incredibly inspired i mean i'm a total sucker for visual beauty i love elaborate really beautiful cinematic language but on set i have to say i'd much rather be in the mix in the Mm -hmm. swamp you know working with the actors on that stuff as opposed to setting up you know, hours sending up the perfect crane shot. I don't know. I mean, I'm, I want to try everything and I'm really happy to be able to work in those bigger opportunity, you know, in those bigger ways. But I think I'm always going to be drawn back to that, yeah. to that sort of bare bones scenario. Well, I really look forward to Touchy Feely and I hope people will definitely seek out Your Sister's Sister opens in Chicago this weekend. Lynn Shelton, thanks so much for your time. Thanks for having me. How are your hamstrings holding up? Real good. You're pretty impressive with a handgun. It's a superlative performance under simulated pressure. Our chemistry is starting to build. I really like your intensity. You're like no nonsense. Well, there's no sense in nonsense, especially when the heat's hot. Exactly. I think I was looking at Entertainment Weekly said this is Mark Duplass month with three movies coming out. And of course, in early July, you have another film coming out that you directed with your brother, Jay, the Dodeca Pentathlon. Do you get a plaque for that or anything? You know what? I haven't gotten a plaque yet. I would I would prefer a fruitcake. Yeah. So if you can let the powers that be know, that would be helpful. I'll work on that. At the risk okay. of stating something painfully obvious, it must be pretty exciting and rewarding, though, to have this much work coming out that you're proud of. It is. You know, honestly, you... Uh, you try and and you hope that uh, the projects you're taking on are going to be good, and and you never really know. And 
And, you know, this last year or so, I just happened to be a part of some really exciting things. So I, I, I can actually talk to you with, with pride this time. Well, I know, too, that you are doing a lot of acting lately, obviously, with those three films we talked about coming out this month, Safety Not Guaranteed, Your Sister's Sister, and People Like Us. And I know you did some shorts before you did The Puffy Chair, but where did acting come in for you? Was that something you always planned to do, or you just kind of got thrown into it? You know, it was it was always something that Jay and I did in our small movies, and again, you know, did it in The Puffy Chair. And I guess the way it kind of evolved is that... It was something I wanted to do, but I didn't dare to admit it, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Because it's such a hard grind and um, and so competitive, I guess. And I am a type of person who, who likes to work a lot, and I like to do producing and writing and directing, I guess. And so I didn't want to spend my life auditioning all day. Right. Um, and, and so I really don't go out and audition. And, and um, I've worked in the past with directors that I'm either friends with or, you know, appreciate my work. And, and it's not just now getting to the point where that's starting to snowball a little bit more. I talked with Colin Trevorrow, the director of Safety Not Guaranteed, a few weeks ago, and he mentioned mm-hmm. how much fun it was to work with you and to see you play a character. And I was thinking that if you look at Hump Day and the Puffy Chair and some of the roles you've played, you have played more of an everyman kind of character, someone who seems pretty similar to who you might be in real life. And this character, Kenneth, really does seem to be a little bit of a departure. Did you see this as a new challenge for you? I did. You know, Kenneth is um, is, is an eccentric, to say the least, and you don't know whether he is crazy or a genius or, or both, or dangerous or just sweet. And I love that mystery to him, um, and it was a departure for me. So the challenge was not only to maintain that mystery, but most importantly to keep him grounded and not keep him... I didn't want to make a big, broad comedy role out of him. And mm-hmm. and when I really found my way into him, it was when I began to think of him as... as a true purist. You know, anyone who believes in time travel can't possibly have a cynical bone in their body. Right. And, and is not sarcastic. And, and as odd as he is, um, to me, that sort of makes him heroic in 2012. You know, the, the man who has warded off cynicism. What's more exciting for you than as an actor being in a conversation where you've got free reign to kind of invent it as you go along. I'm thinking of a conversation like the one at the core of your sister's sister that night with Rosemary DeWitt, where Uh you're working with Lynn Shelton and you kind of get to see where that thing goes, though I know a lot of that was scripted or there were elements of that film that were definitely scripted out, so you had a roadmap. Or is it being a director and watching two actors go through that kind of moment and seeing what they're I mean, I love it all, to be honest with you. And... um... You know, I guess the uh, the difference is like you know playing in an orchestra versus conducting an orchestra. Mm-hmm. You know, you as a conductor, you have that fatherly pride, but when you're inside of it and you're playing it and you're with a group of players and you really feel the music, you know, coming from right next to you, it's also special. So um, I'm just thankful I get to do both right now. I also had an opportunity to talk with Lynn Shelton recently, and she, of course, was very complimentary of you. She said she enjoys working with you because you're so vanity-free and you're just, as an actor, someone who's so interested in the truth, as a director as well. What makes Lynn someone you enjoy collaborating with? Well, we share a very similar taste level. Um, and if you could be on set and you could see the joy that Lynn takes in watching her actors perform, she just loves everything that they do. And that doesn't mean she won't direct you and try and get you to change some things, but she takes such a great joy in, in you know, these characters' flaws and their foibles, and, and she just loves them so much that it makes you feel loved. And it's mm-hmm. a very positive 
I guess, creatively safe environment to be in. And it just makes, you know, makes work a lot of fun. She talked about, during our conversation, doing an episode of Mad Men recently and how on her most recent film, or the one that's coming out later, Touchy Feely, she did a little bit of a more different approach, less improvisation, more of a traditional maybe filmmaking style. And I was curious whether that's something you think, and I know you and Jay experimented with that early on, is that something you ever see yourself going back to, or do you see yourselves kind of just continuing to refine the technique you've developed? Yeah, I mean, I don't see myself going back to anything I was doing back then because all my movies were crappy back then. <laughs> um, but, um, you know, I, I certainly hope that we continue to evolve, you know, and certainly with a movie like Jeff Who Lives at Home, you know, there's bigger set pieces and, you know, there's even a car chase in that film. So I like the idea that um, each of our films will have something new and interesting for us to explore. So not only does it keep us interested, but we hopefully won't bore our audiences by repeating ourselves. Having that experience now of having made a few films and working on a great movie, I really enjoyed Jeff Who Lives at Home. Thank you. What would you go back and, and tell the guy or the guys making The Puffy Chair? Mm, that's very, very interesting. Um, I guess the first thing I would say is don't worry. Everything's going to be okay <laughs> <laughs> because we were stressed as shit making that movie. I bet. And so afraid we were going to squander the $15,000 that our parents gave us to make it. And then, um, you know, I would say try to get a second camera here because if you don't have two, you're going to be swinging that camera around like a madman and you're going to make some people nauseous. Really? And you're, and you're going to miss something, maybe some magic potentially. Maybe right? miss some magic, yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I would love it if you would relate real quick the story of kind of how you guys stumbled on, maybe that's the wrong word, but, but came up with your style and decided to go with it because I know I've read quotes from you and heard the story before that you guys kind of saw yourselves as maybe being a Coen Brothers type of filmmaking Absolutely. duo. And then you, you had a realization one day that that wasn't really going to work for you. Yeah, I mean, we were, we were making derivative films, which is, you know, look, everybody does that in their teens and, and 20s to a certain degree until you find yourself. And, and, but worse than that, we were making shitty derivative films. And we were very depressed, and we were sitting in Jay's apartment in Austin, Texas, and I just looked at Jay and I said, we're going to make a movie today. And he's like, well, we don't have our crew. We don't have, and I was like, fuck all that noise. We're going to pick <laughs> up the camera and we're going to make a movie like we did when we were five years old. And I said, we got to find a concept. And he said, you know what? Something really personal that happened to me, but I was trying to record the personal greeting of my answering machine the other day, and I couldn't get it right, and I almost had an emotional breakdown. <laughs> and I said, you know what? That's perfect. It's, it's funny. It's us. It's, you know. So I said, don't say anything. I'm going out the door. You get the camera ready. I'm walking in, and we're going to improvise it. And we shot one 20-minute improvised take you know, on a camera with, a dead pixel in it and a terrible microphone with terrible lighting. Um, we edited it down to eight minutes, and that was the first movie we made that got into Sundance. Wow. And it cost $3, <laughs> and it won all kinds of awards that year. And it basically taught us that we were getting distracted uh, by all the bells and whistles of filmmaking, and we had forgotten what the core of it is, which for us is an engaging story and good performance. And we have basically not strayed from that microcosm to this day. Wow. How's that for inspiration? So what happens on your sets, or does it happen very often, that you guys do kind of fall into a rut a little bit? Maybe you have an actor or actress you're working with who isn't feeling it in that particular moment and something isn't quite clicking. How do you handle that? Yeah, it happens quite a bit, you know, and, and improvisation helps with that, and you try and change things up. But even if that doesn't work, sometimes it's not the actor's problem. Sometimes it's our fault. Like we have a problem with one of our scripts that we didn't realize until just now. 
so uh, we do something that our financiers and our studios despise, which is we tell everybody to wait because we're going to go walk around the block and try and <laughs> figure it out. And they will hate you when you do that. And, and they will think you don't know what you're doing because all they want to hear on set is we got it so we can move on. And yeah. that will make them like you then, but they won't like you when the movie comes out bad. So right. that's the one piece of advice we try to give people is don't leave set until you got it, even if they hate you, because they'll, they'll be happy you did it later on. Well, I have to ask you about working on another Lynn Shelton film, Hump Day, because that's a, a movie I'm notoriously in love with. And that was one okay. for me that, that just seeing those characters, uh, those two guys who, for the people listening who maybe uh, aren't familiar with it, haven't heard me go on and on about it, two guys take on a pretty crazy art project. And, and they do it, it seems, because they've kind of hit their mid-30s and feel like maybe they've done nothing with their lives. And this is their last great shot at doing something big, at redeeming themselves. And I was thinking about your films on the whole, the, the ones you act in and direct, there seems to be a lot of people who are on these kind of noble quests. Puffy Chair, even, something redemptive about that. Jeff, who lives at home. Hump Day, as we said. And, of course, I think Safety Not Guaranteed as well. And these characters doing something redemptive, maybe getting a little bit lost along the way. So is that is that something you see as a connection as well in those films? And what drew you specifically to Hump Day? I think I am drawn to, um, for lack of a better term, lovable losers as protagonists, people that you might see on the street and you might immediately write off as just quirky, strange, or in the case of Kenneth and Safety Not Guaranteed, insane, um, and finding ways to make people fall in love with them, you know? And mm -hmm. it was done to me when I first watched Rocky One for the first time, you know? You're just watching this guy and he's a thumb breaker and living in that terrible apartment and what the hell is he thinking trying to become a boxer? And then you end up rooting for him, you know? And yeah. And the protagonist, Mark Borchardt, in the documentary American Movie, is the same thing for me. Great you know, film, yeah. You just, you, these people you end up rooting for, despite everything your brain tells you about them, your heart falls in love with them. And, and those are my favorite lead characters. Yeah, and the Jason Siegel character in Jeff Who Lives at Home is a lot like that as well. You've yeah. mentioned a couple movies there. Anyone who follows you on Twitter knows that you're recommending a different Netflix movie a day. You're obviously a very big movie fan, and you go back to the beginning of Jeff Who Lives at Home, and the way the M. Night Shyamalan film Signs mm -hmm. plays out there, the whole film is, I think, really brilliant. It's funny, but also it really does set up exactly the story we're about to watch. And I love the way you do it. Where did that come from? Did you guys just sit down and watch that film and think, we can do something with this, or did that come out as you were developing? I, no, we, we started with the character of Jeff, and, and we hate exposition in movies, and yeah. we're always trying to find a new and interesting way to exposit who the character is and to do it efficiently, you know? And to me, I was thinking to myself, well, Jeff, Jeff believes in the power of the universe, and he's not a cynical guy, so how can we set this up? And um, I was thinking about, you know, just the movie Signs as it relates to Jeff. And I thought, what a perfect way to set up a person who's not cynical. And it's the person whose favorite movie in the entire world is Signs. And not only does he love it, but he guides his own life by the principles of that film. And to me, that set up the tone for the film, which is a little sad, but super sweet. And maybe, in the end, uh, slightly heroic. Right. Well, let's move on to your next film that's coming out, the Dodeca Pentathlon. I am very excited for it because I'm a fan of your work, but I have to admit I don't know anything about it because I'm one of those people who tries to avoid knowing anything about a film before I go in. I'm comfortable just being as much of a blank slate as possible, but I want to give you a chance to, to promote it a little bit and to mention why you're excited about it so people listening will be encouraged to see it. 
Yeah, the dodecapentathlon um, is a movie about two brothers who compete in their own personal 25-event Olympics, though they are in their late 30s, incredibly out of shape, and have no business competing in anything. <laughs> um, and it's Jay's and my way of exploring the lovely, terrible, complicated brotherly dynamic that we also share. And, you know, it's a movie we made in 2008 before we made our studio films that we've finally gotten around to finishing. Hmm. And um, it kind of represents, you know, the types of movies we used to make in Puffy Chair and Baghead and sort of the last vestige of our micro-budget filmmaking. So do you definitely see when you watch it, do you see those kind of raw elements in it? Yeah, you can you can feel it. You know, in many ways, the concept of Dodeca is, is it could be a big-budget Will Ferrell movie, you know, but it's made on a shoestring budget, and it's got... I get, I guess, more of an emotional core to it uh, than those movies would have. So it's a real odd bird, and I really love it. Well, I can't wait to see it. This was really great getting a chance to talk with you. Thanks so much for your time. Awesome. Thank you so much. Take care. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye.